Hello everybody, this is the second sermon in our series looking at the Spirit in action in the book of Acts. This is based on Acts 12 verses 1 to 24 and is entitled, The Sovereign God Opens Doors. We're going to begin with a true story. You might want to look this one up sometime during the week. John Gibson Patton was a Scottish missionary who went to the New Hebrides, what is now Vanuatu, in the South Pacific in November 1858. In many ways, he was a heroic figure. One night, hostile tribesmen surrounded his mission headquarters, intent on burning it and killing Patton and his wife. The two of them prayed all through that terror-filled night, asking God to deliver them. When daylight came, they were surprised to see the attackers leave. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ, and Patton had the opportunity to ask him what kept them from burning the house and killing them. The chief replied, Who were all those men in there with you? Patton said, there were no men there, only my wife and I. But the chief said that they had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. They seemed to circle the mission station so the tribesmen were afraid to attack. In that moment, Patton realised that God had heard his prayers and sent his angels to protect them. However, Patton did not always experience God's miraculous provision in this way. His wife in that story was his second. His first died from tropical fever picked up during childbirth. Seventeen days later, their newborn son also died. That happened early in Patton's missionary career and he was left in a strange, hostile place with no one to comfort him. He even had to dig their graves himself. He later wrote about that occasion. I was never altogether forsaken. The ever merciful God sustained me to lay the precious dust of my loved ones in the quiet grave. But for Jesus... And the fellowship he vouchsafed me there, I must have gone mad and died beside that lowly grave. God went on to give Patton a new wife and sufficient grace to go on working among the people. By the time he died, the entire island where he had lived and worked were Christian. He had learned their language, put it into writing and translated the entire New Testament into it. It was published just before his death in 1899. He'd also set up two orphanages, a printing house, and raised enough funds to place missionaries on 25 of the 30 islands in the chain. It is an astonishing story with truly brave men and women in it. The lesson from it for us today is this. Whatever God providence permits us to go through in life, our primary commitment should always be obedience. 
God in his sovereignty uses human obedience to open doors for the gospel and to win great victories. With that in mind, let us now turn to our passage. The great wonder of reading God's word in the Bible is that it becomes alive and pertinent for every situation we find ourselves in. It's not a dead word, but a living one. The spirit breathes through it as we read. We should always be prepared, therefore, to see something new. Every time I have preached on this passage before, I have triumphantly focused on Peter's miraculous release. It is, after all, a great and exciting story. But this time, as I was preparing, my focus kept coming back to something different. Whereas Peter was delivered from prison, James was not. In verse 2, he becomes the first of Jesus' close friends to be martyred. And as I thought about this, I was sure both apostles would have prayed the same amount. Their friends and companions would also have been fervently praying in equal measure. Yet Peter was released and James was not. This is reality, isn't it? This is human life as we know it. This raises again all those questions that we have during this coronavirus crisis. Why do some get mild symptoms and others end up in intensive care? Why do some die and yet others recover? Why is there no distinction between non-Christians and Christians? Why do such bad things happen to such good people? This passage shows us that those questions will always be with us in our broken world. Suffering like this is what God is at work saving this world from. It's important to remember that God is not unmoved by our plight or our questions. He was so impacted by our suffering that he was prepared to suffer himself on the cross in order to rescue us. And now every time we suffer, we experience a little bit of what Christ was prepared to go through on our behalf. But the fact is, we are now having to wait. We are having to wait until Christ returns to end this often painful age as we know it. And while we wait, we have to accept, like the apostles had to, that many of our questions will remain unanswered. But like Peter and James, and like John Patton and his two wives, we have to choose to do something positive in our waiting as well. We have to choose to remain faithful in our time of crisis. Knowing that if God chooses to take us, we go to be with him. And if he doesn't, he will use us to spread the gospel and hasten the arrival of that final day. Now, why is this context so important? Well, because it teaches us something vital about prayer. The hinge point to this story comes in verse 5. 
Peter is languishing in prison, no doubt feeling doomed to the same fate as James. Everything seems hopeless. Our passage begins in darkness. But suddenly a light shines and it comes with that very word, but. Peter was in prison awaiting death, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. That, as we shall see, is a very big but. You are all probably used to hearing church sermons encouraging us all to pray, hammering out the message that prayer changes things, and it truly does. The Bible is littered with examples from front to back. God actually changes course entirely in response to some of our human prayers. But I wonder how many of us have sat there thinking that for prayer to work in that way, it needs to be full of faith. The type of warrior prayers that only super Christians and Christian professionals can pray. I've certainly felt like this. I think we all at times fall into thinking that our faith is too weak and feeble for our prayers to make any difference. Well, this passage teaches us the opposite of that. It is prayer that changes things in this chapter, absolutely. Peter's release all hinged on the big but in verse 5. But these prayers that were answered were definitely not the prayers of super-Christians. The early church was capable of great faith at times, but here they were as consumed by doubt as we are. No doubt the death of James and the grief that they had felt had deeply affected them. If you want to see what a muddle they were in, just look at the end of the story. Peter, after being miraculously released by the angel, arrives to the place where they were praying and he knocks on the door. Rhoda is so stunned when she hears him, she forgets to open the door and let him in, leaving Peter stood out in the cold. Then when she rushes to tell the others, they point-blank refuse to believe her. And this disbelief occurs just seven short chapters after Peter has been miraculously released from prison once before in Acts 5. I think these darkly comic scenes tell us everything we need to know about the prayers that were being prayed that night. They were honest prayers, despairing prayers. The type of prayers you just about manage to eke out when you're holding on to faith by your fingernails. In verse 5 it says the church were praying earnestly for Peter. The Greek word translated earnestly actually means stretched out. These disciples have thrown themselves on the floor, urgently pleading with God. They are prostrate, clutching onto him as their final hope. These then are prayers of groaning and crying and weeping, not beautiful, articulate prayers that you would craft and write down and publish in a book. The prayers that night were the prayers of people struggling to believe but realising they had no other option. The prayers we pray when we first have to implore God to give us the faith to go on praying before we can ask for anything else. 
Yet incredibly, it was these prayers that worked. Not because they were full of faith and eloquence, for there was very little of either of those. They worked purely because of the sovereignty of the God who heard them. I hope this realisation encourages us all. I hope it encourages us all to go on praying through this coronavirus crisis because even struggling prayers really can change things. But as I said at the beginning, I'm no longer convinced that this passage is primarily about prayer as I preached it before. I think above all else, this passage is about the sovereignty of God. And it's through trusting in his kingly power that we can receive the most comfort in these challenging times. This passage doesn't explain why bad things happen, but it does explain that God has the power to turn them for good. The ultimate plan of our God is to remove suffering from our world forevermore, and a martyrdom can further that cause just as much, if not more, than a miraculous jailbreak. This is the story of much of Acts. Remember last week when we saw how the scattering of the believers after the persecution of Stephen led to the church spreading all over the Mediterranean. Well, here in this passage, the same thing happens. This is how the frankly gruesome death of Herod fits into the story. Herod had set himself up as king in the place of God. He thought he could control the church. He thought he had the power to destroy Christians like James and get away with it. But oh no. At the height of his arrogance, at the peak of his blasphemous pride, God brings him to account and sees that justice is done. The king who thought himself so glorious on the outside was rotten with worms on the inside and his downfall brought its own testimony. The last verse we read contained another of those oh-so-important buts in it. Herod had done all he could to stifle the church, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Can you see again, there is absolutely nothing that can stop God's plans. Peter was miraculously released from prison and of course that became a wonderful testimony to the power of prayer. It helps keep us all going. But the tragic death of James also played its part. Because of his martyrdom, all eyes were on Herod and on what he would do next against the church. When the Lord brought him down, far more people took notice than would have done if James had remained alive. The two together, Peter's release after prayer, God's act of judgment after James's death, both created such a testimony to God's power that the church began exploding in number right across the region. I hope this is making sense. God is in control. He doesn't want anyone to suffer. But when unfortunately that happens, he has the power to turn that for good in a myriad of different and mysterious ways. 
To return you to the patterns in the New Hebrides, it was because John carried on ministering on the island after his first wife and child died that the islanders realised his love for them and ultimately God's love for them. It is because God is sovereign that we can carry on being faithful and obedient in trying circumstances. It is because God is sovereign that we can groan out half-believing prayers and still see them answered. Yes, of course, we would sometimes like God to answer our prayers a bit quicker. And sometimes we want completely different answers to the ones we get. But this passage shows us that we'll get the right ones. I'm so convinced of this that I believe God did hear those prayers for James. And through them, he enabled that apostle to die well in incredibly trying circumstances. We don't know that for sure. The Bible is silent, but one day we'll be able to ask him. In conclusion, I want to say this. The gospel is not a fairy tale or a piece of wishful thinking. It's far, far too honest for that. Instead, the gospel gives us the hope that can bring us through times of tragedy, sometimes with us crawling on our knees, but always to see us standing on the other side. The gospel is the story of death and resurrection, first of Christ and then of us. In this coronavirus crisis, God has not left us. He's still here. He's suffering alongside us as we stutter out our prayers. He's at work already bringing the best of solutions to them. Let us keep the faith. Let us keep praying, for it really makes a difference. And let us continue to tell people about the sovereign God, whose purposes will never fail. The King, whose kingdom is here, and one day will arrive in full.